0: God, we thank you for the way that you can put into words what we feel, the way that you name our struggles, and that makes us want to come to you. So we pray that with your word right now, that you would speak to each one of us where we are. We trust that you'll do that, and we thank you in advance, in Christ's name, amen. Well, this past week, I was uh, doing a little reading about the laws that are most broken in the United States. Anybody want to take a guess? Some of the laws that are most broken in the U.S. Speeding, that's right. Jaywalking, that's another one. Texting while driving. There's probably a lot more I could, you know, we could go on, but I'll, I'll, I'll read you the list. This, th- these were the top connecting to unsecured Wi Fi, <laughs> speeding, playing poker at home for money, pirating music, drinking underage, expect that, smoking weed, but that's right, we're still up in the air on that one. Um, <laughs> jaywalking. And uh, this is one that I know we violated in this very sanctuary, singing happy birthday without the copyright. And uh, actually in the 1990s, the Girl Scouts, uh, were, uh, brought, a lawsuit was brought against them for teaching their campers to sing that around the fire. So there you go. Um, you know, we hear a list like that, and I think it Brings up the mixed feelings we have when it comes to law. One hand, we see it as positive laws that protect our property, laws that protect our children, laws that protect minorities. There are things that we would say, yeah, positive. But then there's that other list, right? Things that we don't know how we feel about texting while driving, whatever it would be, speeding. Now, for a few chapters now, the Apostle Paul has been talking about the complex, mixed feelings that we have with the law of God as well. Uh, you know, it's a big topic, this idea of the law of God. And he's talked about it sort of as a theoretical and legal thing, but here he gets very personal. He's not just talking legally, he's talking experientially of what it feels like to struggle with sin and struggle against God's law. You heard it read, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And then later he says, it's like a war is going on inside of me. And for any of us here, and that means all of us here, that have ever struggled with a vice, a life-controlling addiction, an habitual sin, you know the ache, the groan, and the pain that he's talking about. That thing of the very thing I hate to do, I keep doing. I mean, it speaks really to where we are. Now, you can learn nothing from your sin, or you can learn a lot from your struggle with sin. And God would have us do the latter. He would have us learn from our struggle. And so there are two things that I would like us to learn as we look at this passage. One is understanding the struggle with sin. And the second is undermining the struggle with sin. So understanding the struggle, undermining the struggle. Now, there is a long-standing debate with this passage. And it, it, it revolves around this. Who is Paul describing? Is he talking about himself before he came to know Jesus Christ in a saving, living way? Or is he talking about his experience now as a Christian, as an apostle? So if we fan that out to us, is this passage talking about people that are not yet Christians? Or is it talking about people that are Christians, mature, faithful Christians? Now, in the argument on the first side, that these these are not yet Christians, they would say, well, look at these phrases. He says he's sold under sin. He's captive to the law. He talks about the law being death. There's no mention of God's Holy Spirit. So for all those reasons, it would lead some to say he must be talking about old Paul. But actually, the most widely held view, all the way from Augustine through the Protestant Reformation to theologians today, is that Paul is talking about himself in the present. He's talking about Paul the Apostle and the Christian. And that what he's describing here is an experience that every one of us deals with. Everybody with real living faith. In verse 13, there's a shift actually from the past present verb to the present verb. He makes a distinction between himself and his flesh. And then he says... Deep down, I desire to keep God's law in my inner being. And that means something I think very important. If you sincerely struggle with sin, if you sincerely struggle with it, you are in good company. You're in company with the apostles and the saints. And the very reason you're struggling with it is because deep in your heart, you desire to do the will of God. You desire to do the law of God. You would not have the struggle if it weren't for that. And so, it moves us out of immediately, I think, out of this defeatist mindset. The struggle is evidence of actually something that's good and healthy. But what's to blame for the struggle? And now this is where he gets into this extended discussion about the law of God. Now, he's talking about the Old Testament law, the Hebrew law of God, and I've mentioned in the past there were three types of law in the Old Testament. Now, some of you know this. What was one type? Religious, ceremonial law. That's right, the offerings and the sacrifices. And there was another form. Moral law, we're going to get to that. And then there was the civil law. That was the law that governed Israel. Now, we would say the ceremonial and the civil, uh, they no longer apply to Christians today. One, because Christ fulfilled the ceremonial law. He was that final sacrifice. He was the one that made us clean. And because there's no longer a theocracy, the civil law doesn't apply. Now, we can take principles out of Israel's civil law and use them. In fact, there are many things in our law system today that I think are indebted to that. But at the same time, the one he's talking about is the moral law. So he's saying, is the law of God, the moral law of God, is that to blame for the struggle? And I think he he puts his finger on a question that all of us do. It's a tendency we have, right, to blame not ourselves, but the thing. You know, we eat too much dessert and go, I hate dessert. You know, we say, I don't, I don't hate that I'm gluttonous. I hate dessert. Or we work way too much, too many hours, and then we go, I hate not my workaholism. I hate work. We end up hating the thing. And in our culture, it's very common where people will say, you know, if we didn't have these rules and commandments in the Bible, people wouldn't feel so guilty and they'd be happy. Why do we got to have those things? Or can't we just bring the ones that are affirming? And in those cases, it's blaming the law itself instead of where it rightly deserves, and that is sin. So Paul answers that by saying, by no means. The law is holy, the law is righteous, and the law is good. It's not the law's fault. And this is the thing. The law of God doesn't cause sin. Rather, it does two things. The law of God recognizes sin for us, and it reveals sin in us. The law of God recognizes sin for us, and it reveals sin in us. Now, let's look at those two things. Verse 1, Paul says, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Now, we can think about the analogy of the laws of our land. As Andrew mentioned, tomorrow we'll celebrate Dr. King's birthday. And you could think about the civil rights laws that he worked for and others worked for. And what was the result of those laws? Well, on one hand, those laws restrained racism and prejudice. But they didn't just restrain, they educated. And so people could be able to recognize those things. The law brings light. The book of Proverbs would say that the law is a light And a lamp, excuse me. It's the perfect way of love. One of the effects of sin is our minds get darkened. I mean, maybe you've had this experience before, right? Where you you act out in some way. And you're like, what was I thinking? I remember talking to someone who's really close to me. And uh, they were driving down the highway. And they got into this sort of altercation with someone else in a car. And... uh, they got so angry yelling at this person. They said, literally, I forgot where I was. And I forgot there was anybody even next to me. Right? Sin has a way of darkening our mind, losing our mind. So we need outside help to recognize things. This is what God's law does for us. And so Paul responds to that with a second, by no means. The law didn't cause the sin, but he goes further. He says, it was the sin producing death in me. Not the law producing death in me. It's through that law that sin became really, really sinful. So the cause isn't a law of God in us. It's sin that lives in us. That's the problem. We got this thing living in us called sin. And the law of God has another purpose. It doesn't just light, but it functions like a mirror. Theologian John Calvin would say the moral law has three things. It's like a lamp, we talked about that. It's like a halter, it restrains evil in society. And the third one is it's like a mirror, you know, like one of those cosmetic mirrors. You know, not the not the when you get up close and you go, wow, that's really my face. Or, you know, maybe we can put it in this way, it's like watching, have you ever watched like a, a non or an old movie that wasn't made for HD on an HD TV? Especially if it involves like like Back to the Future, too. And you look at it and you just laugh. You can see like the makeup lines, right? And you can see how everything, for the law does that to us. As we look into it, it begins to show us things about ourselves that normally we wouldn't see. And so Paul says, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced to me all kinds of covetedness. Now Paul is saying two very important things here. One, he's saying, that the law of God reveals not just sinful action, but sinful desires. Now, he mentions the Ten Commandments, and the one he focuses on is the last one, Thou shalt not covet. If you think about the first nine commandments, they're all pretty visible. You know, meaning uh, sinful things that we say, taking God's name in vain, Uh, bearing false witness, dishonoring parents. Or sinful things that we do. Killing, adultery, stealing. But you get to that tenth one, and that's, that's the hook right there. Because the tenth one is about desire. It's wanting something that I have no business wanting. It's covetedness. And that desire is what leads to the act of coveting. And that's the one that Paul said did hit him. It did him in. You know, Paul would say that he felt pretty good about himself. The word he gets is, I felt alive. He said, I was alive when I read the law of God and I externalized it. And we do that, right? We're really good externalizing things, but fooling ourselves and believe. For instance, we might, you know, say, say oh, uh, you know, you look so pretty. And then deep down in our heart, we're like, I hate that you look so pretty. You know, or, you know, hey, that was a really great idea. You brought brought in the staff meeting. We're deep down. We're like, I hate that they always have the good ideas. Right? We live in this sort of duplex where we're externally righteous, but inside we got a graveyard. You know, moral, religious people, but inside it's like a tomb. And the apostle Paul says, I felt pretty good about myself. I was moral. I was a Pharisee. And then I got to that 10th commandment. And the law all of a sudden ripped open my heart and I saw my desires for the first time. And it's so important that sin, or rather the law, show that part of us because that's where we begin to change. I mean, it's not so much the external stuff, right? It's the idols of my control, my manipulation, my obsession with wanting to be liked or to prove myself. It's when the law gets in the desires when we really can begin to grow. And this is what Jesus Christ taught us when you go to the Sermon on the Mount. He basically takes the moral law of Moses and he says, let me drive it to its intended destination, your heart. And he begins to say things like this. Yeah, you shouldn't murder, but you know something? When you hate someone, the seeds of murder are really there. Or he would say, yeah, you shouldn't commit adultery. But when you lust after someone who's not your spouse, or maybe you, know, you want to appear attractive to someone who's not your spouse, or all those different desires, it's the seeds of adultery. And so Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount is getting at the level of our desire. And the reason that's so important, because if that doesn't happen, you kind of live in this no man's land. God's grace is never so sweet. Because you don't need it that much. I mean, you know, that's the thing about like, self-righteousness. If you live just on the externals of behavior, you know, you'll sing Amazing Grace and go, I don't know what's so amazing about grace. You know, maybe as we were singing that song, that old hymn, you heard that, that, that word worm. Now, as modern people, now, you know, and I don't love that word worm, but the point is, as modern people, we're just like, worm? You know, we don't want to think that I'm a wretched person. And yet we get to this place where we have to understand that. So he tells that, us says the law does that, but the law does something else. The law itself actually provokes sin. Now maybe you've seen these studies before where they'll put a hidden camera in a room with a bunch of people and they have like a box on the table that says do not open. It's really funny to watch these things, you know, because then they let different people in and some people sit there and look at it. And, then, you know, it, there's just this percentage of people that always lift it up. They have to look, right? We see this in our kids, you know, if you, if you, kids in your life, you know, especially when they're toddlers and you say, don't touch this, and they'll actually look at you and smile, right? You know, what's going on there? And they can't even really talk, and there's something very deep going on, right? The whole psychology. St. Augustine, uh, this was a big part of what sort of brought him into true faith. It revolved around the fact that when he was a teenager, he and a bunch of buddies went out and stole a bushel of pears. They stole the pears, and they didn't steal the pears because they were hungry. He said, we actually took them and threw them to pigs. But we stole them because they weren't to be taken. Listen to the quote, he says. Those pears were truly pleasant to the sight, but it was not for them that my miserable soul lusted, for I had an abundance of better pears. I stole those simply that I might steal. For having stolen them, I threw them away. My sole gratification in them was my own sin, which I was pleased to enjoy. For if any one of these pears entered my mouth, the only good flavor it had was my sin in eating it. And in that, he's kind of reflecting a little bit, you know, the the, the tree, the fruit, the forbidden fruit, Adam and Eve. The book of Proverbs will say that uh, stolen water is sweet. There's something about the law that sin will exploit it and we actually get provoked. Now, right now, I want to return to what we said earlier because you might be thinking, man, I'm just feeling lousy about myself. Sometimes, you know, I've felt this way. I've heard people say this way. You know, life was easier when I wasn't a Christian. I, I felt better about myself. And when I hang out with my friends in our in they they seem like they're really happy. Hakuna Matata, you know, just like ease up. They're having a good old time. And you think, why? why? Listen, it's because the Spirit of God is in you. It's because you can't be content with what you had before. It's actually a positive and good thing. And it plays into where we are spiritually and growing. The point is this, unless the law does its work on you and I, we will not grow spiritually. It must. We must let it, or you will plateau. We were at winter term this past week, and the topic is sanctification. Duke just did a great job. And someone asked the question, what about when you spiritually plateau? You're just kind of like this. Maybe you felt that way for years. And Duke said, well, a couple things. One, I think he said one thing he said that at some level the law of God or rather the love of God is not gripping our heart right the long grace of God is not gripping our heart so we're plateauing but there's something even before that the law of God is not pricking your heart it's not pricking your heart so if you're spiritually plateaued, you have to ask yourself, Am I, have I found a way to kind of keep God's law here? And then I have this life that I'm living. Or maybe it is, no, I'm well aware of all the bad stuff I'm doing, but you haven't laid hold of grace. And so you find yourself in this cycle. But you and I need to go to that place where we trust that God, like the book of Proverbs says, wounds of a friend can be trusted. That the wounds he brings are for our betterment. And we have to get to that place. Paul cries out, oh, what a wretched man am I. Have you ever said that? Or the book of James, where James says, weep, mourn, and wail over your sin. Have you ever wept, mourned, and wailed over your sin? Or Jesus in the Beatitudes, right? These are the blessings. These are the happy is the person. Happy is the person that mourns over their sin. It's that person that the grace of God begins to taste sweet. So let's move to the last thing. We're going to just take a little bit on this because Romans 8 is all about this. But to finish it off, undermining our struggle with sin. First of all, we begin to undermine it with a proper self-understanding. Paul says, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now, you may have heard that and said, is Paul just excusing himself? just justifying himself you know sin made me do it the devil made me do it well it's clear he hasn't because we just heard him basically opening up his heart he's not making a comment about responsibility he's talking about identity identity the christian gospel teaches that if you become a christian tonight or if you are a christian you will be born again you will become a new creation. The old has come, the old is gone, the new has come. The other language, it says there is an old self and a new self. The old self is described like this in the book of Ephesians. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and this is the old self, is corrupt through deceitful desires. And so on one hand, you shouldn't be surprised that you get this junk in your head and your heart you know I, I i would say for years because i have a proclivity toward a guilty conscience and a conscience where i would just like you know it's part of my compulsive and you know and even just the presence of a thought that wasn't godly would immediately make me just feel like terrible and then i read that wait wait a second yes there's a part of me that is corrupted don't be surprised you know, yeah, there's this part of you that goes, man, oh man, how could I have said that or done that or thought that? But guess what? If you're a Christian, that isn't who you are anymore. That's not the dominant. It's, it's a residual effect. Paul is saying that person is there, but he's saying, in fact, he externalizes it. He says, I didn't do it, but sin did it. That person that was me, but it's not me anymore, the new self, and then it goes on in Ephesians to say, be renewed in the spirit of your minds, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We are new creations in Christ, made in righteousness and holiness. That is the self that dominates for the Christian. So a proper self-understanding will help you with your struggle with sin. You'll begin to understand, where is it coming from? Well, I know who I am. Meg and I are re-watching the Lord of the Rings movies. And last night we watched The Two Towers. And, you know, I love what Peter Jackson does with the, the character Gollum. And I don't know if you remember that scene, but, you know, after the master, Frodo, is nice to Gollum, he, he, he calls him by his real name, Schmiegel. And he's like, whoa, I was a person once, not just this creature. And it softens him up, and he goes through this battle between himself, Right? Where he's like, you know, fighting with this the the one the mean side of himself, and he finally says, "Go away and never come back," you know, "Go away and never come back." And by the third time he says it, it's gone. Now, unfortunately, if you know the movie, it returns. But the point is, Jesus Christ says that on behalf of believers to that old man, that old self. You know, you're no longer in that place. We, we need to understand who we are as we struggle so God's enemy doesn't gain more ground. But lastly, we have to rejoice in our deliverance. Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of death? And this is where I think you and I typically stop. We're struggling with our sins and the things that eat us up, and we just go, who will deliver me from this wretched state? And we stay there. And Paul doesn't stay there. He moves on to go, thanks be to Jesus Christ who delivers me. He moves on to faith, which means when you and I are struggling, even in the midst of the struggle, right after you've struggled and fallen, whatever it would be, we have to be making that profession of gratitude. It's key to actually moving ahead in the struggle. We have to be able to say, even as I struggle, thanks be to God that I've been delivered and the Son of God lives in me. And as chapter 8 will tell us, that we are super conquerors in Christ. As we were uh, ending winter term last night, or rather, I'm sorry, on Wednesday, uh, where Duke ended his lecture was you know, just so encouraging. It stuck with me this week where he said um, two things. One is... The struggle will not go on forever. It will not go on forever, no matter how badly you're struggling. In fact, guess what? It's one day shorter as of today. And tomorrow, it will be one day shorter again. And the next day, you're moving closer. It will not remain with you forever. And just as Jesus won the struggle because He lived in the flesh and fought in the flesh, just as He won, you will win. You will win as well. So let's struggle well, my friends. Let's struggle in faith. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that even in our struggle, you want us to have uh, victory and hope. Thank you for such an honest book. Thank you for the Apostle Paul's honesty. And thank you, Lord. I pray that we could become a more honest community in our community groups, and our conversations, that we could not just reveal that, that we could really open up our hearts and say, this is what I struggle with, to some close confidants. We pray that you would help us, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.